You are listening to the New Street X podcast, where we interview people who understand the intersection of physical and digital collectibles. We're entering an exciting world in the collectible space that involves things like sneakers, NFTs, trading cards, fashion, sports, pop culture, and much, much more. And these things are coming together. So we're here to talk to people that understand that, people that are really building the future of collectibles around the world. Thank you so much for listening. Please follow us on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify, and hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the New Street X podcast. I'm excited to have here today a special guest, Kola Teitler. He is one of the co-founders of Yeezy Mafia, which is one of the biggest, if not the biggest, social media accounts focused on Yeezy footwear. He's also the co-founder and CEO of Dropout, Italy's premium marketplace for limited edition sneakers and streetwear. And he's also a doctor. But more than anything, we come, he comes here today with expertise in sneakers and data, streetwear and fashion. And we're excited to have him here today. So, Cola, thanks so much for being here, man. Thank you for having me, Tony. It's always my, my own pleasure and honor to you know, share my experience. And uh, yeah. Yeah, let's do this. Well, you've had some pretty amazing experiences in the sneaker and streetwear world, man. I mean, let's let's just go from where it all began. Like, how did you get into fashion, sneakers, streetwear? Was it when you were a kid? Like, what was your interest growing up in, in this industry? Um, I think it's a multitude of uh, factors, really, that go into it. Um, I'd say, first of all, I grew up in, uh, um, in Latina, which is a, a small city near Rome in uh, central Italy. And uh, amongst my interests were playing basketball. Um, and I used to play basketball in uh, playgrounds quite a lot with people that used to be, or, you know, were sort of older than me. And uh, this was sort of my early, um, you know, teenage years. I think uh, a lot of those individuals, um, some of them, you know, that been to the US, you know, had experiences in London, in Paris, um, you know, New York, you name it. And a lot of them, used to dress and, you know, wear sort of basketball gear that you wouldn't really find otherwise, you know, in, in the center of Italy. And from that, you know, the, I had always had this fascination with, you know, the, the apparel of the, you know, maybe the more experienced basketball player. And there's been, you know, definitely my early, you know, my early stages, um, a strong association between, you know, sort of who you are and what, what the things that you like are and what you wear. And therefore, you know, this really promoted a, a strong discussion in the basketball you know sort of course initially around you know streetwear culture because again being strongly associated with basketball and you know obviously naturally from that follow the the sneakers which are integral and key part of the streetwear movement so from that i think i sort of developed the initial interest and uh, you know that perhaps coupled with uh, online communities and online forums and you know the emergence of Things like, you know, like Rap Genius at the time, where, you know, you could read the lyrics of the rap songs, where a lot of the times, you know, artists were now also mentioning their sneakers and the way that they dressed. I think that really fostered my interest. And, you know, it all, I would say, spiraled from there. How did it, be how did it evolve from just an interest to, you know, eventually, I mean, to the point now where it's like your full-time job and most of your professional experience, were you collecting sneakers at the time? Did you have some grails in your head? Did you start reselling? How big was reselling when you started? Because I know obviously it's been around for a while, but you know, just the past years have been like even more than let's say 10 years ago. And then how does that lead to Yeezy Mafia as well? Because it sounds like you're obviously spending a lot of time in these like online communities as well when it comes to sneakers. 
Um, well, I think there's a there's quite a bit of a jump between you know this early interest of me and uh, me going on and uh, um, I guess setting up a business in the businesses perhaps in the last few years. Uh, I'd say um, so in my late teenage years, I moved to to London from uh, from Latina to go to medical school, so attend um, you know university. And uh, I, again, I found that a lot of the individuals that I was relating and sort of you know related with weren't necessarily. Uh, folks with whom I I shared um, a lot of interest. Therefore, I again turned to online communities, and uh, in, initially it was more about uh, you know perhaps buying that one pair so that I could you know start growing my collection. And uh, I definitely did have some grails. I had uh, you know I was really a fond of, fond of the um, you know the Nike Mag in 2011 when it came out, the Yeezy ones you know the Nike Yeezys in 2012, then later on 2014, and. The more my interest progressed, the more I, I started seeing that actually there was not just like, you know, a small hobby, but for some people, it was pretty much a cult, I'd say, you know, the one of sneakers, where people would really go on and, like, you know, do the most for, for sneakers. Sometimes even negatively, you know, as we've seen with some news, uh, um, you know, surrounding certain releases. Yeah. However, there was a key episode, I'd say, probably in 2015, I, I went to New York in February, and that was the year where, just for holiday, it was my first time in the States, and that was the, around the time where the um, All-Star Weekend was in New York. And I remember walking in front of this Adidas store, I think it may have been Spring Street or Canal Street, I can't remember exactly, and I remember the, um, like the whole shop window was pretty much like blacked out with like a very small square with one shoe in it. And uh, it was the uh, Yeezy 750, the first Adidas collaboration with Kanye. And I remember thinking, oh, it's quite interesting that, you know, sort of the All-Star game is about to happen, or, you know, it's nearby, like it's nearby. Major event in the city. New York has got so much going on, yet, you know, so much focus is placed on this one sneaker. So, um, you know, I went home, I started researching some more. I read, uh, um, you know, I was sort of on Kanye today, which was this forum at the time. Um, and, you know, I saw the drop and I was quite interested by the fact that the drop was in, meant to be limited quantities, sold out super quickly for a product, for a shoe that, to me, like, aesthetically wasn't particularly pleasing. And a few months down the line in June 20, uh, in fact, early, early June 2015, uh, Adidas now announced the other uh, Kanye West collaboration, the low one, the 350, uh, title though, the name of the colorway being. And at the time, again, I remember reading a lot of, uh, um, like, you know, news outlets and uh, online saying, oh, my God, this shoe is ugly. You know, like, look at this product. Like, no one's going to want it. It looks like a Nike Russia run, but it costs double the price. Rah, rah, rah. So at the time, um, you know, just one afternoon, I happened to be in central London. And I remember reading, I think, on Hypebeast that there was a raffle on the Adidas, in the Adidas store in Oxford Street for this sneak. And I was like, you know what, let me just try so I literally, I went to the store at the time. Oh, actually, in fact, uh, oh, damn, I can't remember. No, it may have been Fuber's place, actually, rather than the Oxford Street one. And I remember literally entering one raffle, one single raffle. Uh, you had to go there, write your name with a pen on a piece of paper, and then write your phone number, write your size, and then they'll be like, okay, look, you know, we'll let you know. And a week later or so, I get a call, and I don't reply, because I didn't used to reply, and I actually still don't, you know, it's just my thing. I don't really reply to people that I don't know. And, um, you know, I see this number from London, and I ignore it. But I get a voicemail and I listen to the voicemail and he says, oh, you know, this is the Adidas store from London. You know, you've been selected for a pair of Yeezys. Um, if you want them, call us back and let us know that you will attend. So I call back and I'm like, yeah, you know, I'll, I'll come. And then again, I go to the release and I remember I was one of the first people in the release. I remember, I think there is a picture from, 
has nobody from the from the drop from the drop day and like i'm like the first one in the door like you know outside the door and they say you know to us like go there and you know get here for like eight o'clock and i get there at like 7 45 uh, you know i'm there there's a bunch of other people not many not many at all and you know we're talking and then the manager comes out and we're like oh you know this like and they had like cakes they had drinks you know we're like okay this looks like a pretty interesting setup for a sneaker release so i kind of you know make a joke to the manager and i'm like oh is kanye coming and he's like, uh, yes. And, you know, we're like, ah, ha, ha, okay, sure. And then I pick up my sneaker and they're like, oh, by the way, if you want to hang around, you know, just hang around. And half an hour later, Kanye West turns up to the store. They take this picture that goes absolutely viral. I think it's one of the most seen pictures ever of the Yeezy drop. You can't actually see him in the picture. It's quite unfortunate. And Kanye signs like pretty much all the boxes. Everyone, including me, sell the shoes, you know, because pretty much we now had the... Uh, brand new Yeezys with the autocraft box. And from there, you know, I think I bought, I bought mine for like 150 and I think I sold them for like 700. From there, you know, I started learning like actually like, you know, there's a massive community around this. There's a massive potential business about this. And, you know, it's so much bigger than what it seems at first glance. And later on, you know, there was a further drops across the year in 2015. And towards the end of 2015, I, I get in touch again with a guy online, again from those online communities. And I won't name him, but these guys had created a, a, a group of people. So it actually already started it. And this group of people were meant to share information among themselves in order to facilitate the purchase of Yeezys for themselves, for either collection or, you know, resale purposes. So I got involved with that very quickly. You know, initially it was a Facebook group. We then moved on to Slack. And this, you know, I had the name of Yeezy Mafia. At the time, again, I had met some more people. I had met some people that had a lot of good information. And the Yeezy Mafia was very, very small. It was like a community of very, very few people. And we decided to use this membership model where in order to get in, you know, unless you were one of the OGs, you know, you had to pay a little membership. It wasn't much. It was like literally having like $10 a month, something like that. But we didn't know how to recruit. So we said, okay, why don't we, you know, use our knowledge and our experience to try and lure people into this and try and attract people into this by giving out information no one else has. And we started doing that initially on Twitter. And again, it went so well that, you know, the whole thing started going more and more and more viral. And we saw that, you know, there was massive opportunities for, you know, to monetize the public, the public that we had created. So I came up with what was a cards platform where we would use automated software that we'd written to try and help people as well as giving them advice to, you know, purchase the sneakers that they wanted. And then they would either, you know, wear them without paying full resale price or, you know, resell them, them you know, themselves. I know I was involved for a, for a few years, not recently though, because basically since I opened Dropout, I sort of left that. You know, because I decided I wanted to focus on something else. But, you know, I, I think that that definitely was a defining moment for us. You know, I like to say that perhaps to an extent, it may have been defining for the whole sneaker industry. And definitely, you know, it, it helped me to understand, you know, a lot of things in terms of how marketing works, how people, you know, work, how demand creation work and how, you know, fashion work as well. That's that's fantastic. You're literally in the middle, from whether it's meeting Kanye West in the Adidas store in London to having Yeezy Mafia explode into one of the biggest, if not the biggest Yeezy sneaker resale accounts in the world. That is the centerpiece of, of sneakers that you're really at the heart of. I, I'm curious to know, at the time, how unique was Yeezy Mafia? Were there other websites or other social media accounts trying to do the same thing? At the time, like the cart software, was this one out of many things? Like, I'm just trying to, to picture for the, the, the listener or the viewer, 
like how unique was the proposition of Yeezy Mafia and how come that's kind of become so much more well-known or maybe there, there were others that, that maybe just didn't reach that same level of scale. I think when, when we started, there was news outlets that gave information, but I think we, I like to think we had, you know, we were giving accurate information. We were giving in a time, you know, in a, you know with great timing. I, you know, I remember, you know, we, sometimes we used to tweet like, oh, you know, this cheesy will become, will come out and, you know, it will be announced on next day. And we were right. You know, we were, we, it was that level of accuracy. We were like, oh, you know, these Yeezys will have the new box, you know, the 350, because before they didn't have the writing on the side. And we were correct. So I think, you know, there was others, but I think all in all, you know, between the timing and the accuracy, I think we were probably far ahead of, of, of others. And with the CAD platform, there were others, but again, we cobbled that with a, with a structure where, you know, we had created a, a community as well. Where you know we were sort of uniting, you know, and unifying all the all the all the people that were interested in in in, in Yeezy's products. And at the time, I guess you know one reason why we were able to do this is because there was no like official Yeezy social media. It was all like a non-official thing. So you know they were making use of these incredible communities, you know, underground communities. But there was like you know, say if you wanted information, like it was either when Adidas tweeted it, which was like, you know, sometimes like. The raffle was only open for two days. So if you didn't know, you know, it was gone. And, you know, we were pretty much the outlet where people were turning to try and get a little bit more information to try and get those products. And with the cards, again, I think, you know, there's definitely others out there, but I think, you know, we were the ones that had a structured approach. You know, we had the whole website for it. We had the whole system with an FAQ, with a contact box. And because we were known, people felt that probably, you know, we were trustworthy. Again, I would say, you know, moving on from that, definitely, you know, like what I learned is that the importance of community building, you know, because I think we weren't really and sort of focusing necessarily on, you know, that individual product, that individual sale, that individual membership. It was more about, you know, are we creating something here? You know, are you, if you engage with us, are you going to be part of something? And I think that that's what people really wanted to do. Uh, you know, they wanted to be part of something when, you know, there wasn't really much else. And at the end of the day, that's also how I started. Like the reality is that, you know, it's not necessarily about fitting in, but, you know, I wanted to be part of the, you know, my little sort of basketball mates. Hence, I wanted to maybe dress like they dressed. And you know, then I wanted to be part of the sneakerhead movement. Hence, I wanted to get the shoes too. So I think, you know, it's also exploring all those little things that, you know, led us to, uh, you know, to create what, you know, has developed into what it is now. No, you built one of the most powerful communities in, in the sneaker world. And then I, it's interesting that the next thing you moved on to, if I've got the timeline correct, was building Hype Analyzer. Was was that right? So could you explain like how that was? Because that seems, of course, it's, it, I mean, everything's kind of like targeted towards the sneaker community, but this is more taking like a data-driven technological approach to understanding not just Yeezys, but like what shoes people demand. So could you explain how Hype Analyzer worked? Yeah, so basically at some point through this, you know, I was still studying all of this and I was, you know, somewhat frustrated with uni and I started focusing a bit more on the sneaker industry. And I was, and I remember researching and, and thinking, oh my God, like, you know, this is so huge, but like, I can't find like anyone who's ever, like in any VC was ever invested in this. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I remember there was, you know, I think Flight Club was uh, established. And I, we, I used to sell my sneakers via Flight Club, in fact. I had a pretty large account as well. And then I think Stadium Goods was born around that time. And, you know, StockX was sort of beginning. And I was thinking, like, it's all, it's all sort of not big enough for what actually the industry is, to, for what I see with my own eyes. So I thought, you know, if I reflect a lot into this, I realize that a lot of the transactions, first of all, are unreported. First of all, they're underground. But also, I used to see that unless I was selling via flight club, I was selling to individuals who 99.9% of the time were going on to sell to someone else. 
And that told me that essentially, you know, we, I was operating in a market where there was some people that were either buying to resell at a higher price or they were buying to hold to then sell later on, you know, at a higher price or maintain an equity, something like that. That was my assumption. So I thought, okay, I mean, that's great. But equally, that tells me that perhaps if I was able to track the later stages, I may be able myself to actually up my profit because at the end of the day, I was thinking, you know, look, if I have, you know, a lot of liquidity and I put it like, you know, in a in a bank to get together, you know, like 2% or whatever, you know, the bank rate is, then if I factor in inflation, you know, and, and you know, the money being sort of stuck there and whatnot, it's like, I'm basically like, you know, not really making great use of my money. So I thought I would uh, develop a system that would help me initially to understand which sneakers to buy, which sneakers to hold and when to sell and when a sneaker was likely to have reached like it's, you know, sort of or close to his potential. And the, the way that we thought, you know, we would do that was to, you know, figure out a, a data system where I would, you know, track the trends of sneaker resale, try and develop an algorithm that took into account those trends and perhaps some other factors and, uh, you know, understand, w- you know, which sneaker is worth more than another and why. So near to this period, I met a guy online, you know, which is one of my co-founders in Dropout, actually. Pretty much, you know, defining him as a wonder kid. You know, he was like a teenager, like, you know, self-taught coder. And I I was also self-taught coder with a sneaker interest. And together, we developed this system where, you know, we would essentially scrape the the web. We would pretty much scrape the whole, like, I would literally define as scraping the web for listings. And we would track them over time for as many products as we could think of, of, like, you know, four or five key brands. And then after about a month or so, give or take, I think we had you know, enough data to say, okay, this product is going here, this product is going there. And you know, looking at how many listings were still available or, or not, depending on the, you know, the platform from which we, we, were, we were checking, we were able to have a, a, an understanding of, you know, is this product being reduced in price or has this product been sold, for example? And from there, we started developing an understanding as to where the prices were going. And all we needed wasn't really... You know, okay, this product you buy for 400, you're going to be able to sell it for 460. It wasn't really that. It was more about the trends. Okay, this product is rising at this, you know, rate. This product is more likely to increase in price compared to this other product. So we added that with a little bit of our experience. We developed, you know, objective criteria to take out the emotions, you know, of the, of the, of the algorithm. And we essentially initially developed a scale where we would, you know, the system will give us a ranking almost of sneakers. And the sneakers at the top were the ones that were more likely to increase in price. So all we had to do now was, you know, find the sneakers at the top for the lowest possible price and buy them. Because we would always find that, you know, you would have, because it's not not a regular market, you have a product that costs 400, but the same product you can find somewhere else for 600. So all we had to do was buy the one for 400. And, you know, we would think that maybe at some point later on, we'll be able to sell it for more. So we did that a few months, worked quite well. After that, again, you know, I started seeing actually, you know, it's working well, both in terms of equity and in terms of, you know, generating cash flow for myself. So I sort of gave the tool to some of my close friends for them to buy the sneakers on my behalf. So I didn't really have to, you know, use my time anymore to do that. And then, you know, when that went on and, you know, I had started to develop, I had so many sneakers that, um, you know, I was thinking again, okay, I'm still selling via third parties. So, you know, I thought that the best way to reach the final customers would be to have my own store. And that's where, you know, in 2018, you know, dropout came on. So I think it's been, you know, sort of this growth within my experience and within my understanding of the market that, you know, I've sort of pretty much been asking myself more and more questions. And, you know, as I went on, I think, you know, the answer has always been, or, you know, it seems to be for me, 
create a new venture that target the issues that I've identified. Yeah, no, this is fantastic. And obviously, as you know, our focus on data and technology at New Street, this is such a relevant conversation for us. Uh, to zoom out on what you were actually doing, uh, maybe maybe to take a step back for a second, uh, someone right now who's a reseller, or let's say someone is running a sneaker business, and we could be talking about someone who is super sophisticated, builds things at your level, even though I, even though I, I doubt that's good. I, I assume that's probably pretty rare. Or someone that just kind of like feels like the vibes when they go to sneaker conventions and stuff. I guess my 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 questions in in succession are one. How do most, like not, not you, but how do most people in the sneaker resale industry analyze things like trends or price? Is it just going on StockX saying, okay, I'll just check really often? Is it kind of just getting a feel based on conversations they're having at different events and stuff? To, to what degree is like the average or like the, the median reseller doing that? And then two, when it comes to like the level of data and sophistication that you built out, is there anyone else... Or, or are there people that do that as well? Or is that like a very rare thing? So just, just I guess, how, how, do, how does the, the broader market approach things like price discovery and trending and, and how to make these business decisions? I think, um, you know, there's two stages to, the, to this in the sense that initially when we started, um, I think like ironically creating something like we did made a lot more sense because uh, I think you got to put this into the context that you, you didn't have StockX and Gold as powerful as they are now. You had a situation where people were selling on Facebook groups, on Gumtree, on Craigslist, on eBay, uh, which was not like with you know with the authenticity guarantee that is there now and whatnot. Therefore, you really had like a spread of uh, uh, listings and prices that was you know out of control. And uh, again, you know, depending on how you know how good you were into you know perhaps also inter interpersonal relationships, you were able to sell you know more or less uh, at a higher or lower price price point. Therefore, you know, what we did came into a context where there was really no guide, there was no understanding, there was no objectivity. So at the time, it was just about, you know, knowledge within the community, knowledge within the, uh, you know, your personal network. And, uh, you know, depending on what, who, like, who your outlets were, because to me, for example, when I sold, when I sold uh, my first sneaker, my first Yeezy, I sold them to a, a reseller, which was so established that years later, they, don't, they opened the store, which I think is still open now. Um, I won't name who they are, but you know, I, know, I know that they did this. Um, so again, I sold to resellers, whereas they sold to final customers. If I knew, if I'd known how to sell to final customers, I could have sold for more. But again, you know, I just, like, they bought at the price that was interesting for them, and I sold at the price that was okay for me. And that was just because of what, you know, I felt. There was no real objectivity to it. And, um, uh, you know, that's pretty much what I saw as a massive fault within the, the segment, that a lot of resellers at the time, even casual resellers, it wasn't, there was no objectivity, there was no really real database, or, or rather, base of data, you know, sort of surrounding it. Whereas in, in recent times, it's really been mostly about, okay, you know, what's the quickest way or cheapest way that I could substitute this product or replace this product if I needed to. And often that could be, you know, finding yourself on Facebook groups or finding yourself on StockX or Goat or, you know, a marketplace like that. And truly, I guess that nowadays, you know, because this marketplace is so reliable at the end of the day, in the sense that, you know, you know that if they don't ship the product, at least you get your money back. So, you know, because of that, they're pretty much taken as a rough guide, even though, you know, we are aware that, like, for example, stores like mine, which sell at a much higher price point, you know, we target to a different clientele. Therefore, I think, you know, it's a little bit of a, 
um, of a non-answer to an extent, because truly at the moment, I think it still depends on to who you're selling to uh, and how you're selling. But I would say, you know, for a price, probably, you know, the marketplaces do form a, a good base. And, uh, you know, depending, you know, moving beyond that, it still depends on to how good you are. Like I was recently in Switzerland, like I think last weekend or the one before I come, yeah, yeah, last weekend. And, uh, um, you know, literally I saw there the price points of sneaker retail store are, you know, I don't want to say off the scale, but they're even higher than mine. And I thought that mine was really, really high. So, and that's surely because, you know, people will pay the price. So again, you know, I think there's an element of like, you know, local competition, you know, to that extent. And then there's also the element of, you know, who you decide that your customers are and that really guides your price. Got it. Okay. This makes complete sense. And it's interesting you mentioned the sort of, I guess you could call it like price arbitrage too, where like if, if we went to Switzerland together right now, we'd be seeing it differently versus we went to your store in Milan versus if we were in California doing it, which brings me to, I guess, the founding of, of Dropout, right? So you'd, you'd gone through this wild journey, Yeezy Mafia to Hype Analyzer, built out one of the biggest sneaker communities in the world. Then you started developing this pretty unique data-driven approach to ranking the hottest sneakers, understanding, okay, I'm going to focus on these to, to resell these. Then how, how did Dropout come about? It, it does seem like the natural progression, like you were saying, to then understand how to sell to a direct customer rather than just resellers. But what was that next step there? Because I also know like, Drop, Dropout, which I'm sure to dive into, is also a physical store focused on the Italian market. But yeah, let's, let's dive into how Dropout works and how that came about. You know, the first point that I, that I, that I made and reflected on was that, okay, you know, I'm selling via Flight Club for the most part. And again, Flight Club is a store which is selling to final to, you know, to end consumers at the 20% markup to, you know, compared to the payout that I'm receiving. I was receiving decent payouts, bear in mind. I was able at times to buy a product in the retail market and just the same day ship it to Flight Club and make money. Therefore, you know, it wasn't really about, you know, making, well, not making money. In fact, it was more about, okay, there's something here, you know, how am I going to exploit that? You know, because I think that. I mean, I don't know how to say, like, you know, without signing up an absolute tool, but I mean, like, you know, how can I really, like, you know, make make good advantage of this before everyone else wakes up to it, right? It was kind of like the, you know, the crypto rush, but it was like the sneaker rush before the sneaker rush. And at that time, again, you know, I saw, you know, I grew up in Italy, bear in mind, but I grew up in the center of Italy. And there was a retail store in, in, in Italy, which is pretty much unique, you know, some friends of ours in Rome, which had opened a few months before. And I saw that there was no sneaker, uh, you know, res sneaker retail store in Milan. And Milan being one of the fashion capitals of the world, I was like, you know, this is just, this doesn't make sense. Like, why isn't there one? And I learned that, you know, there probably wasn't there one for, again, a number of reasons, you know, between bureaucracy, taxis, you know, difficulty in operating a business. And it's not easy operating a business in Italy at all, by any means. And, you know, taxation is quite high and everything. But I asked myself, okay, you know, sometimes I think you, you need to ask yourself, does the business not exist because no one has thought about it? Or does the business not exist because it's not viable? And, you know, you, you're not smart than anyone else. You just, you know, you just need to think more. So I thought a lot and I, I, I said, you know, what, actually, I've seen some inefficiencies in the businesses that I worked with and which, you know, for a fly club and some other ones in London as well later on. And I said, you know what, if I have my own store and I have an approach which is data driven, it's uh, sort of lean from a point of view of operations and is, mm. you know, almost removed from my individual emotions, I could possibly do a business which, you know, is effective and, you know, it can work. So um, because I had, you know, all the old hype analyzer approach, I decided to, you know, again, break down how, how would the store work? And I said, okay, you know, you're going to need people that sell, you're going to need people that buy, you're going to need to decide the prices at, my, you know, at how much you sell 
the price of how much you buy. You're going to need to decide what products you put in, in store, what products you're going to replace. So I wrote like a little map and I was like, okay, which of these can I automate? And which of these can I actually do in a way that is strongly objective? And um, okay, you know, I can't, I can't use a robot, you know, in place of a sales assistant. So I'm going to need a sales assistant. You know, I can't use a robot, you know, in place of someone making packages for the shoes because the shoes are going to need to be checked anyway. So, you know, okay, fine. So I'm going to need that. But then I came on to the, the bulk of the situation, which is in order to make a business that can become fairly large, I'm going to need to figure out how to buy, how much to, to buy at, how much to sell at. And that's when I came, that's when it came to my mind, that actually, I already done all of this. All I had to do was tweak the hyperanalyzer base that I'd already built. And so that's what we did, me and Stefan. So we essentially adapted the hyperanalyzer to make, a, to make a system that could essentially look at the data, similarly as to before, decide the prices both that we were willing to pay and that we were going to be selling for, based initially on you know, sort of the previous experiences and the data that they had, but later on based on our own sales, and create an automated platform where people could sell to us directly without the need for a human intervention to accept or decline. Because I remember that when I used to sell on Flight Club initially, if I'm not mistaken, I think I used to propose them a payout and then they used to like accept or reject something like that. This was like, you know, years, like, I don't know, maybe like eight, nine years ago now or something like that. I used to think like, oh my God, like, you know, I have to hire someone for that. But then it came to my mind, actually, no, I don't. Like, you know, I can automate that. And I, I think I think that, you know, they automated it as well. But, you know, I told about that when we opened, so we had that. And then again, you know, we saw some, in, we had some interest inside for Hype Analyzer that in the public platform, people were only clicking a certain amount of products, despite, you know, how many products were available. And I started researching, you know, what are the determinants of, you know, people choosing to buy or not to buy. And I came around the concept of choice paralysis and how, you know, sometimes if you give people too much choice, they end up not choosing and leaving the store. So I remember seeing that, you know, the American stores, they were pretty much characterized by sneakers all over the walls all over from, you know, roof, from ceiling to the floor, sometimes repeated as well. Like, you know, you may have the same sneaker like three times just because they had to fill the wall, make it look full. And I was like, okay, that's cool. But then I also thought my store, you know, to make sure that it's profitable, I'm going to need to sell at a high price point. Therefore, I'm going to need to speak to people that are pretty wealthy and that they are able to afford, you know, a high price point. Therefore, I'm going to start looking not at the sneaker stores, but I'm going to start looking at the luxury stores. So I started looking at the luxury boutiques in central London, in Paris, in, in Milan, in Rome, you know, in Brussels, things like that. And I started seeing actually they were displaying less products, you know, because of those things like that. So I knew how many products people were clicking on. I knew that displaying, you know, all over the world wasn't necessarily going to work. So I took a different approach and we did one of the, you know, maybe at least at the time it was pretty rare for a sneaker retail store not to have the walls full, but instead to have very few products on display. And the rest, if you wanted, you could ask. You know, we had a website anyway where you could look at. And, you know, we could propose to the person if they wanted. So, you know, we started using this pretty much this approach all over. And, you know, I mean, it's, it's worked out, you know, so, you know, so far for us. In 2021, we actually raised external capital as well with the seed round, with VC involvement, which, again, in the sneaker retail industry is, is, is fairly rare. We opened a new store in Milan, which is actually in front of Dolce & Gabbana in the luxury neighborhood. And again, because initially we were in the streetwear part, but then we said, yes, we're selling streetwear, but who are we selling to? And what are we really selling them? Like, you know, like a lot of people, they don't buy streetwear because of streetwear history. They buy streetwear because they like the look, because it's in fashion and so on, and, um, and because they can afford it, right? So we brought the store closer to people that can afford it, and, you know, that's paid off. So, you know, that's worked for us. And, you know, now obviously we're studying on, you know, what the next expansions would be like.
considering that you know the primary driver of our revenue as well as of our operations is the physical you know experience got it okay this is a very interesting unique experience that as as you said like the, the success of your retail experience is based on well one You've done a lot of automation, data, using data to make decisions that probably is counter to maybe how some of the more vibe-driven stores operate. And two, you've kind of looked at profitability rather than maybe what's the commonly used best practice of having a bunch of sneakers around somewhere, modeling your stores more after luxury fashion rather than maybe like streetwear or hype. A question about that model that you're talking about at a global scale, because, you know, you mentioned like being inspired by some of these like luxury stores in Europe and then maybe like in the US, some of the big sneaker stores, not all of them, of course, but some of them just have this like massive and I've seen some of them, you know, firsthand myself, like massive display of shoes top to top to bottom. Mm-hmm. What would you say are the differences in, let's say, how American sneaker stores are set up versus European, maybe just like yours. And then maybe even at a global scale, I don't know if you spend much time also in like Japan or or or, or France or Hong Kong or other places that, you know, have a lot of streetwear influence. But what you've built as well through those things I mentioned, how unique is that on a global scale as well, putting aside just comparing it to the US? I think um, I, I have to refer predominantly to third-party experience because actually, aside from the US and, and Europe, I think you know the only one place I've been recently is um, is Israel, where I've had a couple of I've looked at a couple of stores in Tel Aviv. But I, I guess again, their approach was pretty unique, pretty different from from ours. So, and you know, the focus on the product was fairly different. So probably not a fair comparison. But I'd say you know I'm definitely seeing that uh, there are more stores following an approach similar to ours. I do think that at the end of the day, like you have a market where a lot of individuals, as I said earlier, and a lot of businesses, they are operating on very thin margins to start with anyway. Because, you know, if you consider that the retail fashion business is operating at a margin of about, you know, 3x, whatever the approach is price. Whereas, uh, you know, a, a sneaker retail store is operating most often at 1.2x. It's, it's like, you know, almost three times less you know, perhaps 2.5 times less. You need to be quite careful. And therefore, our approach was also based on the fact that we had to, you know, ensure that, you know, we were holding on to good stock because otherwise, you know, having too much stock will kill you, you know, as a a business. And uh, um, I've definitely seen uh, ventures both succeed and also fail, you know, that they've had the the opposite approach, i.e., you know, trying to do a low volume at, you know, low margins. But the thing is, I, I find that that, you know, for, for my own risk appetite can be challenging in the sense that a, a change in market conditions when you are working in volume may, on, on the volume may actually affect you more than, you know, if you are doing like, you know, less, less sales, but like perhaps, you know, with, with a healthier, perhaps let's call it margin. But I, I do see both. I think, again, you know, there's a cultural element to it. Whereas if you think about Italian fashion, you probably do think about high-end anyway. So, you know, to make a store that looks more high-end probably makes more makes sense, like in the Italian culture. Because in Italy, like, you know, if you spend, uh, you know, three, four, five hundred, you, you are like upper class, I'm sorry. but And that's just pretty much factory. In the sense, your income, you know, your household income must be quite high. Whereas, you know, in, in some other areas where maybe Jordans are more of a, say, you know, like a cultural phenomenon, maybe people may be willing to do more sacrifices and not necessarily be from such, you know, wealthy backgrounds. So, you know, there's also that, you know, I think having said that, though, that 
because of the type of clientele that we that we target. If we were one day to open stores in the in the you know in other, in other regions, I think we would do a blend between you know what is our understanding of the market and also what are the local preferences and you know and how to try and sort of navigate between the two. I think this there's a bigger question here that I'd love to get your opinion on, which is what is the role of physical sneaker retail today? Because you know when you and I first met, some of the things we talked about was just talking about how some of the a lot of sneaker stores have shut down recently. Uh, while we're talking about chains or more still like boutique kind of stores, you know, you have the spectrum of the Foot Locker, JD Sports of the world to more of the like higher end, more more hype stores in major cities around the world. I actually spoke to someone on the podcast a few, few weeks ago, DP Sneak, who's a pretty big reseller, but he's also actually starting to open his physical stores, but a specific strategy focusing on like, not in massive urban areas, but more like second, third tier cities in the US. But I guess just on the broader retail sneaker perspective, knowing that, you know, there's been a lot of news recently about how well or how not so well some of these companies are doing. And then you also have th- stuff like, you know, the, 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 the brands themselves having their own stores like Adidas and Nike, and then also having a lot of inventory that happens through, through the apps. It's, it's a big question. We could probably just spend 10 hours just talking about sneaker retail itself. But maybe one way to frame it, which would be the best way to like kind of gather your insight here is... Compared to, let's say, 2015, when you first walked into that Adidas store, had your first pair of Yeezys, met Kanye, to now, what what are like the biggest shifts in retail where what you could do successfully in 2015, you can't do now, or at least it's more difficult? I think, um, you know, is a, a, again, as you say, we could spend 10 hours even on just single points that you've that you raised. But I think some key considerations... Um, are the fact that a lot of this business, a lot of this market, in fact, is based on trust because you know there's so much counterfeit, there's so much, um, unfortunately, you know, dirt, and so much you know people out there that are uh, you know up to no good and looking for a quick buck, um, and that um, means that you know if you have a physical outlet, first of all, that obviously creates a higher degree of trust because you know people know that okay, there's a storefront, you know, there's a face, and it's less likely that you're gonna. You know, I mean, it's harder to shut down a physical store and, you know, take everything off rather than, you know, close the website, redirect the domain or put a, you know, a, a slide that says, you know, we're done. Um, so there's there's that element to it, number one. But also, to me, you know, I think we definitely do need to take into account that compared to 2015, you know, we've had the pandemic in between with people spending, you know, being forced to spend more online and some of those trends remaining or, you know, affecting how the way that we conduct business. And I think that maybe at the time, you know, if you didn't have an online business, then that's fine. But now I think you there's no excuse in the sense that maybe in 2015, you know, you could have had a sneaker resale business that was just a storefront, just a physical. And then during the pandemic, you could have had a sneaker resale venture that was, you know, just online. But I think that now, you know, if you have a physical storefront and you're not present online, I think you're making yourself a disservice. But likewise, if you're online and you don't have a physical storefront, you risk, you know, missing out on some of the establishment of trust and community that you could otherwise do with. And we see this, you know, from, you know, GOAT acquiring Flight Club, you know, StockX having so many physical drop-off points. Because I don't, I mean... I think that you probably, I think if I'm not mistaken, you can't, every now and then they do pop-ups in the StockX stock uh, drop-off points, but I'm sure that the store in the middle of Soho in London, the one in, you know, in Broadway, New York, I'm sure they're expensive. So there's more to, you know, there's more about building, building onto the awareness that they already have with the digital presence and, you know, increasing that consideration and ultimately that conversion. Therefore, I think that, you know, if we think about it, you know, the classical marketing funnel of, you know, awareness, 
consideration, conversion. Well, this was short and formal, but I think, you know, it helps to have a physical presence to move down, you know, your, your users. And, you know, as I say, likewise, even more than ever, now it's somewhat necessary to sort of know where you stand, know, you know, how you're attracting your people and how you're going to retain them. Because again, I think that, you know, it helps for businesses to retain, you know, their, 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 cons- their consumers. Like, you know, we unfortunately heard of, you know, uh, great difficulty as well. And though this also put sort of mistrust and, uh, and promotes a lack of faith, you know, amongst the, con- the consumers. So, you know, if you, if you remain, if you have something that is quite solid and again, tangible, then again, you know, that's, that's bound to help. And, and equally, again, you know, every physical store where, you know, you can physically touch the product, you know, because touching the product is, is known and has shown to, you know, influence purchase. You, you, because you make the person to feel a step closer to owning that product if they can touch it and see it with their own eyes directly. So I think, you know, if you have an experience where you can do that or you can have, you know, footage or, you know, video advertising shot in your own store, I think that really, really, really helps. Man, there, time is flying by. There's so many more questions I still want to ask, but now we know we're running out of time here. That hybrid approach to retail and it kind of makes it, to me, seem it requires a slightly more sophisticated approach rather than just simplicity when it comes to like having like a multi-layered experience for a customer, which is like, again, a whole other topic there. A question I wanted to ask before we, we start wrapping up here is given what you've seen being at the heart of, let's say, trends, whether it's from a community perspective, a data perspective, and even now like a physical store location perspective. And of course, trends in sneakers themselves, we could probably talk about for 20 hours, but maybe just to narrow down the question for you, based on data you've seen, and maybe even just like feelings of of experiences you've had face-to-face with people in the sneaker world, what are some trends that surprise you that have happened over the last like couple of years? What And that could be anything from brands that you see are doing well or not doing so well to just maybe your general feeling about the health and state of the resale market. I'd love to just know like what what kind of makes you like think a lot and what, what, what you're excited about or surprised by. I think, um, you know, one thing that surprised me, I'd say, is uh, the role of collaborations in the sense that, you know, we, we'd seen that collaborations truly help probably, you know, increase the brand equity for the producing brands. And, you know, they foster the resale community, the resale market, the resale segment. And I found that they... I don't want to say the quality, but the, perhaps the level of collaboration has, has uh, um, changed to an extent and perhaps not for the best. And that definitely has had an impact both on brands and also on uh, um, on, uh, on the resale market in the sense that uh, I was looking at my data the other day and we've had a slow decline on the average product um, value in terms of when we talk about actual sales. Uh, you know, we went from initially, I think in 2018, we had the online average product value was like 600 euros, and now it's about 280. Therefore, you know, that's telling us that either people are deciding to spend their money on something else, or more likely that the products that are more, you know, in fashion, more requested, are products that simply cost less. But we see that it's the same demographic that is buying them anyway, at least from my, from my store. And this is not necessarily a demographic that needs to choose, you know, if to buy X or Y. It's often a demographic that could buy either or both, in fact. But that has more got to do with the level of influence that, you know, the, the brands are exerting on certain models. You know, perhaps maybe they have a need to, you know, push influence and marketing over models, certain models that cost less or that they are able to perhaps ease more, more easily, you know, push in a, in a, in a wider scale. We've seen uh, uh, at the same time, I think, perhaps a lesser, I would say, focus on on uh, limited releases 
sort of paced over time. And a bigger approach that, you know, is made up of uh, frequent releases. For example, we, you know, I remember when, uh, and I'm thinking like, for example, you know, like when the first Jesus came out with, with Adidas, it was one every three months. Like it was literally the event of the year when they came out. And, uh, you know, until the, you know, la- later stages of the collaboration with Kanye, where there was one, like, you know, s- just every other week, seriously. I think that, again, you know, that surprised me to an extent, because even though that may drive brand equity, it's not like, you know, like Adidas was then selling the same product without the Kanye brand. Like, you know, the Yeezy was just the Yeezy. Whereas I think, you know, for example, brands like Nike and Jordan, they've, you know, remained doing things where, you know, they, you sell at the ultra limited, you know, Jordan Dior, and then you sell the more widely available gray Jordan meat that is quite similar, you know, and so on. So I think that approach, you know, maybe has, has surprised me from, from certain brands. It has meant that, as I say, you know, the average or the, the average product price point has, has reduced. Although at the same time, I understand how this may make sense from a brand perspective, because if the average product in the retail market for Jordan is 600 euros, but then the retail price is 130 euros, you also do risk to having too much of a dissociation between, you know, the the, the, the price and the value that people perceive. Therefore, you know, I think rebalancing that, I think to an extent probably may be healthier for the long term. I think obviously, you know, for as much insight as I can have, I will never have as much insight as these brands themselves do, I, I guess anyway. <laughs> and, you know, so I'm sure that there is, there is more to it. But definitely, you know, I think it's interesting from a sneaker result perspective because I think that this truly affects, you know, businesses like mine, like other businesses as well. And also I reflect, you know, on, on the businesses that operate uh, on, on low margins or, the, you know, or anyone who wants to focus on, on margins in particular as a first driver, because now that the average product is much cheaper, you truly need to sell a lot more. Like if you think that 10% of a 600 euro product is 60 euros, 10% of a 280 is 28. So that's half. So you need to sell double as much. And you don't necessarily, you're not necessarily able to do that. Because 280 euros for a pair of sneakers is still a lot of money, you know, for the average individual. So I think, you know, we're still in a, in a period where the, a lot of reflection is needed. And I think, you know, you, anyone in order to have a business that, again, you know, there's so many factors that can affect whether a business succeeds or not. Mine could fail tomorrow for all I know. But, you know, I think if you do reflect on those things, maybe you do give yourself your best chance of, you know, progressing within the, within the space. I'm going to wrap up with the same last two questions uh, I ask every guest. The first being, where can people find you on social media, website, et cetera? And then the second and final question being, what's one last message you'd like to leave with the audience? By writing my name on, on Google, I, all my social media come up. But um, LinkedIn uh, is my probably preferred for business, like inquiries or chats or whatever. Instagram for more casual. And, you know, this is pretty much the, the two that I use. I am I am on Facebook and Twitter and, well, X and so on. But I just use them to read, really. I don't really engage much on that. And it's just name that's, you know, name, surname. In terms of the last message, I think, you know, for me, this was truly a journey of self-discovery. And, uh, you know, I... I before people say, no, you know, like I want to make money, like, you know, so I want to do what you've done. And I'm actually thinking, fair enough. But at the same time, like, I think the approach is completely, like, my approach to me was always so different in the sense that it was never really about the money like that. It was more about, I see an opportunity in something that I like, and I'm going to be happy doing that. And to me, you know, having my own businesses, you know, is something that makes me happy, you know, working as a doctor is something that makes me happy. And I think that when you can really, when you can really start asking yourself the deeper questions, as in, you know, what drives you, what makes you happy, then I think you get answers to questions that you also did not ask yourself, like, you know, how can I make more money, for example? So I think that maybe, you know, I think 
asking yourself the right questions, I think, is really, really something that's been key to me. And I, I, as I hope I've, you know, perhaps relayed and, and mentioned, like pretty much everything that I've done, you know, I, you know, the, between the, the things that I mentioned has been the result of, okay, you know, this question has come up. How do I answer that? And then, you know, I've taken it from there in this journey of discovery that, you know, has been me so far. That is an amazing way to close, Cola. Thanks so much, man. I mean, asking the big question, self-discovery, something I think everybody needs to hear more of. And also, that reminded me of something we didn't even bring up, but maybe for our next episode, you're also a doctor. In case anyone isn't aware, you've got a lot of things you're balancing, so you're doing a lot in this world and for this world. So thanks so much for being on the podcast, man. I'll talk to you soon. Yet again, thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to the New Street X podcast. You can learn more about the guest in the show notes and learn more about New Street at newstreet.com. Please make sure to like, follow, subscribe across YouTube, Apple, Spotify, and more. Thank you so much. See you next time.